Hi, this is Heather Levitas and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery lecture series. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We have Dr. Lauren Rosenfield with us today. He is a board-certified plastic surgeon in private practice in Burlingame, California since 1987. He is an active clinical professor of plastic surgery at both the University of California, San Francisco and Stanford University. Dr. Rosenfield has lectured widely, both nationally and internationally, and published extensively, contributing many original articles and chapters within the plastic surgery literature. He has authored innovative contributions in both facial rejuvenation and body contouring, describing procedures which are at once maximally effective and safe. Dr. Rosenfield also has written original work on the subject of safety, and his perioperative surgical checklist has become the standard for both the American Society of Aesthetic Surgery and within the European Union. Dr. Rosenfield is a former traveling lecture professor for both the American Society of Aesthetic Surgery as well as the International Society of Aesthetic Surgery. He is also the former chair of both the safety course committees within ASAPS. He is now a director on the board of ASAPS and a senior examiner for the American Board of Plastic Surgery. Thank you, Dr. Rosenfield, for being uh, here with us today. So um, before we get into questioning him, let's review some basic breast embryology and anatomy. Today's topic is going to be uh, mainly focused on breast augmentation, but we want to make sure we cover some commonly tested tested topics on our in-service. So as far as embryology goes uh, with concern to the breast, the mammary ridge forms at the fifth to sixth week of development when ingrowths from the ectodermal skin layer penetrate the mesoderm. Amasia indicates the absence of the mammary gland completely. Amastia is the total absence of the entire breast, not just the mammary gland. Athelia is the absence of the nipple. And another commonly tested topic is anterior thoracic hypoplasia, where the pectoralis muscle is present and the nipple areolar complex is superiorly displaced. In terms of some commonly tested anatomy, the pectoralis muscle is relevant to this topic. The blood supply uh, with submuscular augmentation becomes the thoracoacromial artery. It goes from the thoracoacromial artery to the uh, collaterals mostly which are disrupted with the subglandular implant placement. The pectoralis uh, muscle attaches to the sternal half of the clavicle, the ventral surface of the sternum and costal cartilages two through six, a slip of the aponeurosis of the external oblique muscle, and its function is to flex, adduct, and rotate the arms medially. The breast is innervated by thoracic nerves three through six, The nipple is innervated by the lateral cutaneous nerve of the third and fourth intercostal nerves, which have a lateral branching pattern. And these can be preserved by bluntly dissecting lateral to the edge of the pectoralis minor. And so with that, we'll have uh, Dr. Rosenfield talk to us a little bit about his preoperative assessment of patients and how he goes about uh, his planning. So good morning. Thank you for asking me to visit. Uh, As far as the... uh preoperative assessment goes, the most important item on your agenda should be to really understand, or as I like to put it, get inside the patient's head and figure out what it is that they want. What is their vision? That means you need to know primarily what they expect their breast to look like. They're going to often come in with pictures. 
from the net or from from their friends or from a previous consultation, they're going to have some preconceived idea. And if that does not match the anatomy that you see in body habitus and the breast itself, then the most important thing you could do that day is reinform and otherwise educate the patient as to what is possible. If you want to create a safe and effective and proportional breast implant. So with that said, uh, as far as specifics are concerned in, in, in the history, you also want to know about their pregnancy and breastfeeding because that's going to influence and weight loss and weight gain. That's going to influence the way you can expect the breast to look and the, and the breast uh, contents. And as far as other features are concerned, you want to know about if they smoke or not, if we're going to do a mastopexy. I, I never uh, will operate on a, on a smoker. They have to stop smoking for two weeks in advance. And I'd say that's enough for the, for the pre-op key points. As far as the actual exam is concerned, the key feature in my mind is that you're not going to see me with lots of rulers and measuring tapes. I'm, I'm not a big believer in, in that kind of way to construct a future surgery. I think the key and only measurement that's really required is the distance from the nippleolar complex to the crease. That amount of skin, there or not, is going to determine entirely the size of the implant you're going to be able to put in. And you otherwise would have to lower the crease and risk double bubble, risk the nipple going, uh, turning up and being too high. Or if that is resistant, you're going to end up with an overly filled upper pole. So that amount of skin in that lower pole is what's going to determine the entire case. So that gives me an idea if it's four centimeters or 10 centimeters, I'm going to know how big of implant is going to be possible. And am I going to match what the patient, as I said earlier, is wanting? Um, with that said, um, the only other measurement I'll do is I pinch the upper pole of the breast so I can see whether I've got about two centimeters or more of, of breast thickness because I'll do everything I can to do submammary only. And only if there was a nipple just on the chest am I going to do a submuscular implantation. So that said... Those are the two particular measurements I make. I then discuss with the patient, based upon that, their body habitus, what envelope we have. I'm going to then talk to them about what I think we can accomplish, primarily in terms of what's going to be proportional and available for their breast. The important thing to understand there is, is as I like to tell patients, you can't put 12 ounces in an 8-ounce glass. It's going to overflow, and despite what they may want or what they see on the web or what some other surgeon has said, it's just not appropriate for aesthetics. Consequently, if the patient comes in with a very tight eight-cup breast, then you know you can only go so far with, with the size, and they have to be aware of that. If they come in with a constricted breast, even more so, there's a limit. Some patients you can release and get more, and some you can't. You have to discuss that with them. If they come in with ptosis, where they've got lots of extra skin, then you can say, sure, there's a lot of latitude here. And then we just make the qualified decision, can we do an augmentation without a lift or not? The key question to ask the patient in that regard is ask them, are you happy with your breasts in a bra? If they're happy with their breasts in a bra, then you, don't, then, then you know you need to do an augmentation primarily, and you might not have to do a lift. But if they say, even when I'm in a bra, which is, which is really mimicking what a breast uh, mastopexy should do, 
And if they say, even then, I don't like the fullness, I don't have it, it's not giving me the cleavage I want, then that's a good indication that a, that a mastopexy is required. And that's a good way to kind of split the patients into two, those that really do need a lift and those that don't. <clears throat> then as, as far as the surgery is concerned, you can ask me, where do you want me to go with that? Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the next thing I was going to ask is about your approach, because we're taught that there's sort of three uh, major approaches. We have a transaxillary, a submammary, and a periareolar approach. Correct. So I tell patients, as far as that's concerned, I tell them there are three ways to go. There's also the uh, periumbilical way, and there's putting it through your ear. And all these ways are, are possible, but you have to decide at some point when the risk-benefit is such that it's not appropriate. So I think what we're left with is submammary and axillary. I tell the patient that axillary is good until it's not. I think we don't have the, I want access, I want palpability and visibility, and I want a scar that heals well and doesn't cause nipple uh, sensation loss. And so in axillary, you can end up with a scar that's visible. You've got, you don't have the access you want with your finger and your, and your eye. And Submammary is reasonable as the most common way to go, but the problem is, is if it's not exactly where it should be and the patient lifts their arm, it could be exposed uh, beyond their, their bathing suit top, and uh, the scar can be bad. It can get thick. Periareolar, in my opinion, has been the best melding of, the best of both worlds. I get a good scar. I've got good access, full control of the, of the breast and the pocket. And I've not had any, an increased instance of contractors, as has been concerned. I do use nipple covers, and I do all the antibiotic protection that we should. And as I say, I've not had a problem with that. As far as the approach is concerned, I therefore go periareolar. Now with the Keller funnel, the size of the areola makes no difference. I was trained to put implants in through very small incisions with Cronin and Giroux, and so it, it just became a pleasure to not have to prove that to people like a magic trick. Now I have the Keller funnel and uh, you can put in any size implant through any small incision. I usually make like a, you know, three centimeter incision. It's usually from about, you know, four o'clock to, to eight o'clock, not very far. And <clears throat> through that, I dissect down to the base of the uh, fascia of the pectoralis and I raise submammary rather than submuscular, which we can get into later. And I make that submammary pocket only the size of the implant the so and the boundaries of, more importantly, of the breast. Because in the end, no matter what your measurements are, that implant needs to be covered by breast tissue. If it's not, you're going to end up with rippling folding, looking abnormal and looking alien. It needs to sit under breast tissue. So um, I will dissect all margins that I've marked preoperatively as the margins of the breast that are existent. And then once I've created that pocket, I will then sit the patient up with a sizer in. I, have, I only use sizers before I do a proper implantation. And when I sit the patient up, I want to see the nipple pointing forward. I want to see no overfill at the upper pole. And it's sitting naturally at the crease where I haven't dissected too significantly so you don't see any double bubble, which, as I say, I purposely don't actually release the crease, uh, only passively with the implant expanding. Once I've reached that sweet spot, I then always go one bigger because that way prevents the question post-op is, could I have gone bigger, Dr. Rosenfield? Well, as long as I put one bigger and I tell the patient pre-op and my nurses, myself and God know that we tried to go bigger and it doesn't look natural, that question and that concern gets removed from the table post-op. 
Granted, we can wait a year and wait for the skin to stretch again and put in a bigger implant at that time, which I tell them pre-op. But that way I know I've reached the limit or what I call the sweet spot of augmentation. There's too small, there's too big, and there's just right. It's what I call the three bears of aesthetic surgery. So that implant we know the size of now. I then do the same thing. <clears throat> I'll have done the same thing on both sides. I'll have put those sizers in, set them up, and I know I've got the right size. As far as the dissection go, we should mention one thing. I purposely try not to go too far immediately because you can end up with symmastia and it's not going to look right. You can't create cleavage. you got to go to where the breast is. And if there is no breast immediately, don't create cleavage. You're going to end up with skin and implant. Even in muscle, you have to release the muscle and it's going to retract. So don't tell me that the muscle is covering the implant. It's not, or most of the time it's not. So and laterally, I'm very careful at the lateral margin because I don't want to, to hurt the fourth intercostal nerve. So I don't do sharp dissection there. I use blunt dissection with a sponge stick and my finger just to go as far as the, as the mid-axillary line because I don't want to suddenly slide, which can happen, and create a lateral fall. Take pictures of your patients lying down post-op and you'll be surprised at how often you're overly dissecting laterally. So that preserves my margins. And as I said, inferiorly, it's simply to the crease and superiorly, it's to where the breast tissue is. That's all I need to do. I don't make an overly large implant like we used to think was valuable. It's just, the, it's just where the breast is. Then the sizers go in, sit them up. We know the size. I then <clears throat> take the implants out. I irrigate with triple antibiotic. I put a diluted solution of betadine, half and half with saline. I leave that in because I'm going to be putting a drain in next, and that's going to drain out all the excess. That drain stays overnight. I really do believe that making sure that's bone dry post-op, considering the fluid I see post-op, uh, helps reduce potentially the chances of contracture. Um, I then put the change my gloves, use the Keller funnel, and I put the implants in. I then close the wound in layers, and I'm very, very careful about that because anytime you use implants, you need to make sure you're very solidly um, comfortable with your closure in case there should be any dehiscence. And so it's closed as carefully as I opened in layers, finding the proper breast uh, layers to close. Uh, and then I use a, a nylon to finally close the periareolar. I put on strips, wrap the patient up. 24 hours later, the drain comes out, the dressing comes off. I examine all my patients post-op the first night, whether they're at home or in the hotel nearby, simply because you don't want to miss a hematoma. You miss one and your results plummet. So you, and you can't depend upon anybody but yourself to make sure that that hematoma has not occurred. And then uh, I have them wear a non-underwear bra for six weeks and off they go. And Dr. Rosenfield, can you talk about uh, tuberous breast deformities and how you approach these patients? Sure. So the short answer is, is that if they've got a tuberous and tight breast, then you can only do what you can do. You know, as I jokingly said, I have a serenity prayer laminated in my office, which basically says that, you know, you fix what you can and you let go and let fly what you can't. And that's a good example of where there's a limit to what you can do. Some patients, that skin is very mobile stretchable, releasable in surgery when you, you try to release the fascia from the deep side, and you can get a really nice result, and you can, and you can literally, uh, you know, release the inframammary crease, lower it, and you can't see the old crease. The problem is a lot of those patients, that's not the case. So the way I approach that is I first explain to the patient that is not always the case. So let's not get too excited about how good the result's going to be. 
we're going to go uh, with the biggest implant I can get in that's not going to create a double bubble and a, and a, a, a deformity. So I wait till surgery. I can usually tell a little bit if they've had a few kids, there's going to be some extra skin. The tissues have been, they're older. The tissues are a little more, uh, a little more free and, and easy. So it's more likely they're going to get a better result. But just the same, I wait till surgery. I make my pocket the same way I just described. And then I see what that inframammary crease is like. I start releasing it. If I see any hint, even with a subfascial, with fascial release and, and, and breast incision, to expand the the lower pole. If I don't see good release of that inframammary crease, I stop because you, there is you're you're fooling yourself to think you're not going to end up with a deformity. So I then go as far as I can, put in the sizer, and do the rest exactly the same way. I'm not a believer in the submuscular plane. It's particularly difficult with a ptosis or a tight breast because you're fighting the muscle. And so what I learned many years ago is I've I I finally made my resolution to not feel compelled to go submuscular because you're fighting the muscle when you're trying to repair, particularly as atotic or, or, or constricted breasts. And of course, as we all know, as the muscular implants are not submuscular, they're primarily or at least 50% submammary. And uh, you've got the whole issues of pain and uh, potential increase in hematoma and late animation deformities, which no one really wants to talk about. There's not much in the way of in the literature for obvious reasons. So that's all avoided. And I think the primary reason why I'm able to question mark, in quotation marks get away with it is because I'm not over augmenting. If you put huge implants in, you need to go submuscular because you need to prevent that shelving effect in the upper pole. But I don't over augment. Uh, I think I augment to the sweet spot and some others would consider that under augmenting and I understand. But the fact is that has prevented me or allowed me to not have to go submuscular. So to answer your question, I just dissect, ensure that I'm able to release it as much as I can and put the biggest implant I can to be able to get that expanded because you want the primary objective of a constricted breast is create a lower pole. But as you know, the, the irony of those patients and even totic patients is you lack the tissues where you need them in the lower pole and you have excess of tissue in the upper pole where you don't need it. And you have to be able to reconcile that only as much as you can. The other point I wanted to bring up is that classically on our exam, we're tested on uh, the fact that submuscular implants minimize the risk of contracture, as does uh, an IMF incision, as do textured implants, especially when placed in the subglandular pocket, although that's not so relevant anymore because no one's using those. Um, And then the frequency cited in the literature is about 5 to 10%. Obviously, in your practice, you don't see that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be right. doing what you're doing. So in your practice, what is your experience? Right. So I think in all deference uh, to challenge that, as I asked, I know it was a UC or Stanford resident, I said, I want you to make a spreadsheet for me of all those instances, whether it be for periarolar incisions versus submammary, whether it was for submuscular versus submammary. And the literature is, for the last 60 years, is very confusing as to what mm-hmm is right. It's one of those examples where we've lost control, we have an implant, and we're not sure how it's going to act. So until we have data that will definitively tell me otherwise, I, I think most people are not putting it under the muscle anymore as when I was in training. Well, it reduces the contracture rate. Today, it's primarily because they're putting really large implants in and they want that shelf to be protected in the upper pole. Because it makes no sense how that could possibly help contracture. If the muscle atrophies, it's as thin as a piece of paper, and most of it is not submuscular anyway. 
I find it hard to understand how that could be the case. So in my practice, I have a very low contracture rate. I think it's primarily because I'm not putting in enormous implants and I'm taking very stringent uh, sterility control. Beyond that, as I told you, I walk three times around clockwise and three counterclockwise around the, around the table and I say some old uh, Irish incantations and then, <laughs> and then I'm happy. But the fact remains that I think that as a result of that, I've eliminated so many problems post-operatively that I no longer see. And the struggles in surgery to fight that muscle uh, is, is gone. Um, and another point I wanted to bring up uh, that we're commonly tested on is implant monitoring. In saline implants, the, the protocol is that a mammogram is acceptable, um, with the Eklund view being the view that's used. And then we're tested on the fact that saline implants sh- should be monitored every two years after the first three years in place. I know in private practice that probably doesn't happen, and just wanted to get your yeah. thoughts on what you do with your patients. Sure. So uh, that's a good e- that's a good example of um, where the industry and the lawyers are potentially, or someone is, uh, driving the engine. And as you have alluded, I think most do not follow that rule specifically or stringently. I think you just have to be sensible about it. I tell patients that as far as mammography is concerned, you should get a mammography every year if you're you know, 35 or 40. I tend to be aggressive at 35, but I know it's been moved. And get that every year. If there was any major problem in the way of a, of a, um, uh, a leak, because contracture you're going to feel, we don't need that, but a leak, which is the big concern, it's going to potentially be visible on mammography. Uh, you're going to tell clinically. I'm going to tell. I have all my patients come every year at no charge for the rest of their living days wow. because I want to follow up. You need a second pair of hands and eyes to review it. And the fact is, yes, you can get an MRI and you can get ultrasounds and all sorts of other stuff. But the question is, what's the risk if we don't? You have to show me evidence that would suggest that there's a huge risk if we don't, whereas there is a risk of a woman having multiple scans and studies and expense. So I don't find the value of that. I do mention it, and I say you could do it, but I don't think you need to. Come to me every year, examine your breasts every month, and if there's any issues, we know what we're going to do. Uh, we can do those studies if it's necessary. Actually, it ends up being moot because normally if we think there's an, a rupture, then we just go to surgery. There's no reason to get an MRI to prove it. I'm going to get the best test possible. I'll be in surgery and I'll remove it. Right. But if they've got good-looking breasts and there's no problems and no contracture and we're not sure and the mammography was questionable, sure, get an MRI and see if it's a problem. Uh, but I think those uh, constraining uh, kind of recommendations should probably get changed because I don't know anybody that's following them. Right. And... Here they are on our exam from yeah. just six months ago. This is, I sorry I misspoke earlier, I meant to say silicone implant when I was talking right. about monitoring. Right. And then um, the sort of buzzword that we're tested on is linguini sign on MRI. Right. You right. know, you have some kind of silent rupture. Right. Right. Um, but this is a question just from last year. A 47-year-old woman who underwent bilateral augmentation mammoplasty with silicone implants to treat mammary hypoplasia 17 years ago is evaluated because of worsening pain firmness and distortion of her breasts, which of the following diagnostic evaluations is most sensitive for evaluating this patient's silicone breast implants. And the choices are breast thermography, CT scan, mammography, MRI, or ultrasound. And in this case, the answer was MRI, although they did not give us um, a clinical evaluation as an answer choice. So perhaps that would have been the answer if it was a choice. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> I think the, I, I'm not sure why I would get an MRI in that patient. 
I mean, if she had worsening pain and firmness and distortion, I would just be going into surgery. Mm. I wouldn't be doing any studies. That's a uh, bad (laughs) question. Take it out of the exam. It's a bunch of hooey. It's a bunch of hooey, as you're going to hear from me. Yes. (laughs) And then, let's see. We could go through perhaps one more question on... um, a hot topic. I won't give away the answer, though. But yeah. um, 39-year-old woman <clears throat> comes to the office with a six-month history of progressive firmness and superior fullness of the left breast. History includes bilateral augmentation mammoplasty with textured saline implants placed in a submuscular dual-plane pocket 15 years ago. On physical examination, the left breast appears larger and firmer with more upper pole fullness in comparison with the right breast. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? And the answer to this question was ultrasonography. The other choices were capsulectomy and pocket change, mammography, three-month trial of singular or MRI. Right. So, you know, obviously you're not going to jump right to surgery on A. B, mammography is not going to help you. That's the breast tissue. That could be helpful if there was a cancer you related to ALCL. That, that could potentially show a, some um, nodule or tumor. Three-month trial of glare is for contracture, which is not really the issue here that we're most concerned about. And uh, MRI, similarly so, the, it, it would be reasonable if you're looking for nodules and rupture, which again is not the key issue. The ultrasound, the main thing is the fluid. What we found, as far as we know, the issue with, with um, ALCL is that the patient presents with an enlarged breast on one side, but appears to be fluid. So it's what you need to do is go to surgery and follow the protocols that are well established in every possible breast, every possible uh, plastic surgery site to take some of the fluid, get it tested, take uh, a portion of capsule to get it tested, and do whatever you're going to do to the breast, um, which generally speaking, if there was no other problem, then you would uh, do a capsulectomy and, and a replant. But the answer is ultrasound, because you want to confirm that the fluid is there. Um, and in fact, there can be an argument that if it's obvious that there's fluid, you don't even need to do the ultrasound because in the end, you just have to go to surgery and you need to, and you need to get the implant out, take the capsule, send it with fluid. And Hannah, not to be a um, mean senior resident, but what is the uh, surface protein that you would test for in this fluid? I believe it is T-cell CD30. Yep, you got it. That's another thing they love to ask us, something you just got to memorize. Yeah. Yeah, random. Very random. Yeah. <laughs> Important, but not necessary to know. <laughs> All right. Okay. And I think um, unless Dr. Rosenfield has anything else he'd like to a- add, sure. um, we'll wrap it up. But I got a couple things. I think yes. that, uh, Please. a couple other <laughs> principles that I think are important. I think, for example, when it comes to uh, the submuscular, which I struggle with for so long, particularly in the totic patient for the reasons I stated it, if you th- and in all deference to Tebbets, who is a brilliant surgeon and a friend, and I respect very much, one of my rules, the kind of philosophies became that if you need to do, if you do one surgery, which is the, uh, you know, Tebbets technique of um, dual plane, and then you have to do uh, another surgery to, to do further release uh, at some level of that plane to try to defeat the muscle, then maybe the original procedure was not the right procedure, which in this case is the submuscular. Because if you're fighting something um, in the first place and you're doing procedures to try to overwhelm that, then perhaps getting out of the submuscular plane is the right thing to do. Because what will happen invariably is um, that all looks good on paper, you know, level one, level two, and all that. But in the end, 
um, if the muscle's active, it's going to distort the implant. It's not going to be sitting in the lower pole, and you're going to have a double bubble, you're going to have an empty lower pole, and you're going to say, oh, we have to go back to surgery and release the muscle some more. So once I said, I'm going to follow that principle, that I don't want to do one surgery that then has to fix, be fixed by another surgery, I got out of that plane. And with the totic patient, it's totally liberating because you put it in the pocket and it lifts the nipple. Mm -hmm. It feels the lower pole. How many times have you seen what I call the implant ma'am is in the first floor when it needs to be in the basement? I want you to examine all the women that have had semicellular implants over the next six months. And I want you to write down, is that implant in the lower pole or not? Almost always, if those implants have been in for many years, it is not in the basement. It's in the second floor. It's on the first floor. Mm. So it looks good when they put on their bra or bathing suit, but really something looks wrong. It looks sad because the skin is slid down and you now have this pseudotosis with no implant in the lower pole. Mm-hmm. And that does not happen with a submammary implantation. Mm-hmm. And that's something no one talks about. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, do that test, basement, first floor. And the beautiful thing about those cases is you say, we got a solution. And they say, really, what are you gonna do? Change the implant size, change the implant? No, I'm gonna put that implant in the submammary pocket and we're gonna solve it. And you wanna make a patient happy, do that and it fixes everything. Of course, that's what should have been done in the first place, in my opinion. And this is after all these dual plane procedures. This is not like they didn't do all the right procedures. It just follows my principle that you're trying to fight something like City Hall that won't always work, and then you end up, a lot of the time, defeated. And so I think that's just another big reason why, and I'm not alone, there's a lot of other docs that feel the same way. I mean, with regards to the numbers, when you're measure, measuring from the nipple to the inframammary fold, is there are there any guidelines that you could give specifically, like, you know, if I have four centimeters, then right. I can use? Sure. Well, I think, I again, changes. yeah, I mean, I think it's mainly is it tight or not. And I think if you have somebody who's got three, four centimeters, you know, they're a tight, constricted breast and that patient or they're just very small then that patient, there's going to be a limit to how big that implant can be. And I'm probably, somebody asked me today, what's my size range? It's like 240 to 325. That's about mm-hmm. probably my the, the, the middle third of my bell curve, mm-hmm. um, which is probably half of what most humans on earth are putting in. Uh, but the fact <laughs> is that, that that is about what two to three centimeters, it's going to be pretty tight. It's going to have to be small. But most instances with a small breast, it's going to be four or five centimeters. That's enough to make a proportional breast. And uh, if it's more than that, then you have to make the qualified decision. Is it so much pseudotosis that you need to do uh, a lift? Be careful because often that skin is not really redundant. You're going to have to take it up with your implant. And if you willy-nilly cut out, particularly what will be horizontal excess through that vertical incision, if you did a mastopexy, you're going to regret it because you needed that tissue. So it's not as excessive as you think it is, um, whereas the upper pole is, is, is excessive. That's what a lift is. A true breast lift is moving the footprint up. We can't do that. And as I mentioned to you, you need to show your patient that you have a lot of skin between your, your uh, manubrium and your nipple. And the only way for me to really lift your breast would be to make a large lenticular excision running horizontally across your upper chest to get rid of that redundant skin. It's obviously something you wouldn't do, but it graphically points out 
why we aren't really lifting your breast. We're lifting the nipple a little bit, we're taking a little excess from the lower pole, but we're really not lifting your breast. It's an optical illusion, which is another important point. So what surgeons will often do is say, well, if I just take more skin away from around the nipple, I'm going to get it to lift. No, you end up with an overly high nipple that can't be covered anymore, and you haven't lifted the breast at all. Yeah. So it's a really important principle to appreciate. And don't take my word for it. Go to clinic next time and just look for that. You're going to see that the skin in the lower pole is not particularly excessive, actually. And the reason why they're sagging is not because of the excess in the lower pole. Mm -hmm. It's because of excess in their upper pole. Mm -hmm. And you can't fix that. Right. You can cheat. The, optic, the optics are cheating. Mm -hmm. It's an optical illusion. When we raise that nipple, it looks like it's lifted. When you fill up the envelope, it looks lifted. Really, you're just moving the breast in a different position. It's different. You're, you're moving the nipple, nipple up, and you're taking, if you are doing a little bit of a, a, a mastopex, you're taking yeah. some of that excess from the lower, pole, the lower pole, but the footprint is really not moving. Right. It's the same place. It can't possibly move if there's so much excess in that upper pole where that chest skin can't be removed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important part. The other, thing, the other thing I tell patients is the following. You know, I say a perfect breast has a perfect envelope, that matches a perfect volume. So I'm right here, right? And my hands are together, right in the middle of this ruler. You either, you could have too much skin and you could have too little volume. Mm -hmm. Now my hands are very far apart. You've got very little volume and a lot of skin. So you have to decide, what are you going to do about that? Well, you could take up the envelope of excess skin with a lot of volume and overly augment and make it look wrong. Or you could say, well, I could take down the envelope and match that small volume, but that's gonna end up being a tiny breast that doesn't look like anything. So that's the reason why breast dog pexy makes sense. So I'd say, ma'am, you're gonna need a bit of both. I need to raise up your volume and take down your envelope. And that's how you know and think about these patients. Or it may be only the volume needs to go up, mm -hmm. or maybe only the envelope has to come down. And so that's a good way to think about what procedure do I do? Just think, I want the envelope and the volume to be perfectly matched. And what do I need to do to do that? And like I made that comparison, if you look at a mature woman's breast that's totic, it's like a wide-based wine glass. And you have to fill a glass from bottom up. So by the time you filled up the bottom of the glass to get to the top, you've put in an enormous implant. So the only way to fix that patient is to turn that wine glass into a straight drinking glass. And the opposite holds true for the constricted breast that has a narrow base glass that widens at the top. You, if you can fill it all you like, it's going to be overfilled at the upper pole. You need to expand the lower base of that glass as much as you can to, again, bring, that, bring it to that perfect balance of a nice, tall glass that's proportional. Enough said. We could go all day. It's we been could. a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so sure. much. Thank you, guys. <laughs>